session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. I uh, won't be taking calls today because I'm also on Instagram Live. You can follow me on Facebook or Instagram or like my, uh, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Um, so the books of the week. So I'll get into last week's, but the book for this week is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, you maybe have seen this book uh, being uh, talked about a lot. I remember wanting to get it a while ago. I wish I had because actually soon after the George Floyd uh, incident and murder and then the protests, books like this started to sell out. So I actually had to wait a while to get my hands on it, but I'm happy I did. So that's How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, the book of the week for this week is Economic, or the, from last week that I'll talk about tonight, is Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling, which was a wonderful book. As I've described before, I look for books in a variety of ways. Um, sometimes when you are searching online, it'll show you related books or books you might be interested in, or I'll go around bookstores. Of course, haven't been able to do that for a few months because of the coronavirus. But when I saw that title, Economic Dignity, it definitely caught my attention. When I read a little bit about it, I felt that it would be a good book for me to read. Um, to begin with, I have done a few books uh, in the field of economics lately, and I have done them before as well, but especially now I'm, I'm realizing the significance in when we talk about things like race and racism, and I, the next book is um, about how to be an anti-racist, but if we want to solve the issues that we have in the world right now related to race and racism, if we don't approach them from an economic standpoint, we won't be able to um, do enough to help make things better. If we don't approach the um, aspects of what's going on in an economic way, we won't overcome them, or at least that aspect of things won't be met. So uh, I feel it's important to educate myself and, of course, then talk about these topics on the show. So to give myself a better understanding of what's going on, um, as I've mentioned in the recent shows, if we see injustices in the world, we have to arm ourselves with knowledge, understanding, and education in order to have a bigger impact. So it's important to pay attention to the feelings we have when it comes to the disunity or the uh, injustices that are happening in the world. But the feelings themselves are not enough. We have to arm ourselves, get ourselves prepared and ready to make a bigger impact. And one of the ways we can do that is to educate ourselves on issues related to what's going on and how to bring about positive change. And so uh, this book, Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling, was a great book that very much aligned with the ways I was thinking about these things. Um, so Gene Sperling was the chief White House economic advisor to President Obama and President Clinton. And, and so this, this concept, economic dignity, as he talks about in the book, 
something that I've always been puzzled with, especially recently when I look at things related to the economy and how it's affecting people, is that we sometimes focus on things like growth or GDP, these metrics and numbers that measure something more almost abstract or just a, a number or um, some specific facet of the economy, but it doesn't necessarily reflect what people are experiencing, which is really what economics is about. We don't just care about GDP to have a number. People are saying we want to look at GDP to look at what is the growth in this year in our country or in the world or whatever it might be to better understand what's happened. So it's to understand what people are going through because generally when there is more growth, that means people are having a higher standard of living, enjoying life more, and all of those things which are good. But unfortunately, we can recognize that those numbers sometimes are missing the bigger issues of what's actually going on, what people's lived experiences are. And so uh, Gene Sperling in this book discusses how we need to not, of course, completely get rid of all those metrics and numbers, but realize that they're not enough and that we should base our economic policy and also assessing how uh, our economy and economic policies are doing based on other factors than just GDP. So he explains economic dignity, which he describes as something that could be like the North Star that guides us when we're making economic policy. And that means that it's not something that's static, that's set in stone, but it's something we have to keep evaluating when we're trying to understand what's going on. So let me tell you what he um, describes as economic dignity, which again, that title, that concept itself, I like that our economy is so that everyone has an economic dignity. So he says there's three pillars to economic dignity. The first one is the capacity to care for family without economic deprivation, denying people the ability to experience its most meaningful moments and greatest joys. The second one is the right to pursuit of potential and purpose and true first and second chances. And the third one is the power to work and contribute with respect and without domination and humiliation. So I'll go through those threes a little bit more. So the first one, the capacity to care for family without economic deprivation, denying people the ability to experience its most meaningful moments and greatest joys. So first, the capacity to care for your family meaning that you can take care of them economically, which makes sense and that's good. But it's not enough just to be able to, let's say, make enough money to um, pay for the expenses or the minimum of the expenses. That, of course, is a minimum. But uh, as he puts it, um, to be able to experience the most meaningful moments and greatest joys. So uh, there was a section in that chapter um, titled something like to be able to put food on the table, but also sit at the table, meaning that if we really want to give dignity to all human beings, and the book was focused on America. He was um, an economic advisor to two American presidents, and so that was the focus. But of course, we can think of this globally as well. We, of course, want people to be taken care of as far as have their basic needs met, of course. But on top of that, people should be able to enjoy their family, spend time with them. Or if someone is sick, have the time to be and take care of their sick child or sick loved one without fear of not being able to make it economically. But far too often, people are given these choices of either have enough money to make it um, or take care of your kid. 
And that's a problem. It shouldn't be an either or where you have to choose. Everyone should be able to have that and make enough money to take care of your family and be there to enjoy enjoy them. So I thought that was a very interesting distinction, not just having enough money to survive, which is definitely necessary and a basic um, requirement that everyone should have a human right. But on top of that, that we should think about how are people allowed to uh, spend time with their family. For example, many moms in the United States get one, can get up to one week off when they're giving birth. So imagine giving birth before, during, and after you get one week total of paid time off. And then what? Either you go back to work or you're not getting paid. And that's heartbreaking, of course. And even now that child already is probably at a disadvantage based on that economic stress and burden that they are being born into. And so it's important that we take care of everyone or allow for everyone to be taken care of, take care of themselves, their families, and also to be able to spend that time and to be with them as well. So the second one is the right to pursuit of potential and purpose and true first and second chances. So everyone should get the right to see what they want to do. And, and it's not, he, he tries to be realistic, and I think he was in the book, so it's not that everyone is going to live their dream, but that everyone should have a chance to meet their potential or to find purpose in, in their work. Um, and so that includes, of course, things like education. Uh, the United States, it's embarrassing how much, based on where you were born and how much money your family has, is going to impact your life in so many ways, but including the education we provide for children. And I think this is heartbreaking and definitely um, beyond unacceptable to think that if you are a poorer child, you get a worse education than a more wealthy child, meaning your family was more wealthy. And then this is, of course, going to affect what you can do in your own life. We know that the quality of education can have big impacts on how far you go in your schooling and then, of course, your earning potential and things of that sort. So if we want to say, you know, we have the American dream where anyone can make it, yeah, it's true, people from all aspects of life, all socioeconomic backgrounds do make it sometimes, but we know that it's heavily favored in that if you were um, born into a wealthy family, the accident of your birth, if you were born into a wealthy family, your chances of being successful are much higher. And so I know people sometimes will say, well, look at this person who made it, who was born into poverty. That's true. Of course, people can make it, but it's much less likely. And so if we want to talk about a level playing field, that means everyone should have as equal as possible an opportunity to make it as possible, meaning that we don't have huge disadvantages. You know, the example is if you put a hundred pound weight on some people and everyone else doesn't have a weight and they go run, um, of course, sometimes that person with that huge weight on their shoulders can make it and win, but it's not a fair race. So Sometimes people like to point to those exceptions to be like, see, this person made it out of poverty. Uh, that means that poverty is not holding anyone back if they work hard enough. It's ridiculous to make a statement like that, that it's not, um, that, that the opportunities are equal. Actually, LeBron James um, had a very good commercial for me, a very powerful commercial where he talked about himself and he was born into poverty, single mom who barely was making ends meet, even they were practically homeless or very, very poor for most of his life. And then now he's uh, one of the greatest basketball players of all time and, of course, incredibly wealthy. Um, and at the end of that commercial, he's talking about his humble beginnings, but he said, what if there were no more humble beginnings? 
Meaning, what if we had a world, or if you're talking about America, a country where no child was born into extreme and severe poverty? And it's a very powerful message when you see him talk about everything he overcame. And, you know, in a way, it could be like, look what I overcame. I'm so great. But he's actually saying, I don't want any other child to go through that. No child should be born into those circumstances that I was born into. So I thought it was a very powerful uh, message and something I think we ideally would want to create is where no child is born into extreme poverty. So if every person is given a fair first and second chance, meaning that even you can make mistakes and, and try to bounce back, but even that first chance, not everyone is given a fair first chance. When we look at if you are wealthy, the likelihood that your children can go to college is so much more. From the schooling, they get uh, extracurricular things that you do to consultants and coaches. And forget about the explicit cheating that was happening and some even celebrities got um, arrested for uh, cheating to get their kids into college. But even with what is quote-unquote legal and okay, it creates a very unfair advantage where poorer children have a much harder time getting into good schools, getting into colleges to begin with, but especially the better colleges and universities. And that's going to have huge impacts on how they can then live their lives and what happens going forward. And then a third pillar is the power to work and contribute with respect and without domination and humiliation. So throughout history and even still, there are these arguments about capitalism, socialism. And he tries to make the points, Gene Sperling, the author of Economic Dignity, that we don't want to get tied into an ideology. So for example, okay, the free market has to be free market, or it has to be socialist, or it has to be done in this way or that way, or it has to be less government or more government. And we shouldn't focus on these ideologies and some basic rules of thumb to decide how we're going to go forward, but rather we should look at those end goals. Are we, for example, making sure everyone is taken care of? Everyone has um, these three pillars in their lives. And so throughout history, of course, employers had a lot more power than the employees. And if there was no intervention or no laws or regulations, it's very easy for them to dominate and humiliate them. And so he's saying that we have to make sure the laws and the way that things are set up is in such a way that um, the workers have a right to not be dominated or humiliated. Of course, sounds basic, but if we look at what's happening around the world, but even in the United States, very often the workers don't have the power to unionize or to form those unions to take care of themselves, and they can be dominated in different ways. Or for example, um, people who get a visa through their employer, they very often can be uh, dominated by the employer who can threaten having them kicked out of the country essentially because they're the one that brought them in. They don't really have the power to switch jobs because they only can keep their visa if they were uh, working with that employer and sometimes they can get taken advantage of. So we have to be aware of the ways that people can be exploited, dominated, and humiliated. And He says that if we maintain economic dignity for all human beings, we have to pay attention to these factors. And so he gets into lots of details about different issues from education to uh, even an interesting chapter about, you know, we look at automation and AI and there's a lot of speculation about how that's going to change the job market. And it absolutely will. What I actually think kind of related to what he shares in the book is that many jobs will be no longer needed. For example, let's say if you are a driver, that's actually a big one. Things like truck drivers, if there's autonomous vehicles, there will no longer be a need or the same kind of need 
for truck drivers. I think what we will see is that we will see a shift towards human contact jobs. And he talks about these double dignity jobs, for example, taking care of the elderly or people with disabilities, um, that we will see a shift from those types of jobs that machines cannot replicate, human to human contact, uh, early child education. We can invest more of our human capital and human resources into taking care of one another in ways that are actually quite meaningful. And so I think um, there will be changes in the job market, the way things are done. Maybe even we'll become more efficient overall in certain ways. So we'll get to spend more time with our families and loved ones. We won't have to work the standard 40, 50, 60 hours, and of course more that some people work and be able to be there with our family, which goes back to that first pillar of economic dignity to be able to make enough money to take care of our family, but also enjoy the moments that we could share with our family, those meaningful moments, which I think is so, so important. I really liked how he made that point, that it's not just enough to say, okay, everyone has enough money to feed themselves and let's say even have healthcare, which of course is a big issue in the United States. But on top of that, to be able to enjoy their family. Uh, if you bring a baby into the world and you're taking care of that baby, hopefully you have all the medical and and diapers and all the things that add up taking care of them, but you should also get to enjoy spending time with your baby and, and your other loved ones as well. So I really enjoyed this book, Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling, because uh, I think it was a good understanding for me of how we should view economic policies and things we're doing going forward and how to evaluate what we're doing and to not get caught up into certain metrics like GDP or growth uh, without looking at how people's lives are affected. Because to me, I think most people would agree, if you told me there was a lot of growth, we made a lot more money in the country in some way, or the wealth was more, but it only went to some people and 50,000 more children are homeless or in poverty, I wouldn't consider that a good year for the economy. We want to look at what the results are, what are people experiencing. And so this basic concept of economic dignity and trying to ensure that every human being, again, this book was geared towards the United States, but that everyone has that basic level of economic dignity is so important. And so, of course, I can only touch on a few of the topics in this short review or summary of the book, but I highly recommend you check out that book. He actually just did an article in the New York Times, or I shouldn't say just, it came out in April. That was also interesting, and that's Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling. Let's go to our first commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling, a great book that really gives you some insights into uh, the economy and how we can focus our economy to be one that gives dignity to people, not just focus on things like financial metrics of GDP growth and, and that sort. And so I wanted to, in a way, talk about something related to that topic. Also, it brings in a few issues that we're dealing with right now, especially here in the United States, and relates to the economy as well. So I shared this story a few years ago, it was back in 2017, I believe. Um, so there was an officer in, I think it's close to the Atlanta area, Atlanta, Georgia, and he gets a call that there's a shoplifter at this store. And so the officer was actually his first week working, Officer Che Milton. And so when he gets there, he sees that the shoplifter is a 12-year-old girl. 
Um, and not only is it a 12 year old girl already, of course, that could change the way you look at the situation, but she's trying to steal a pair of $2 shoes. Um, and even more, uh, you know, bringing up your compassion for this person, she was stealing them for her, I think, five-year-old sister, saying that she wanted to do something nice for her and she couldn't afford to pay for the shoes. And so Officer Milton, taking a step and not just saying, well, there's a law and a rule and I have to enforce this rule, realizing that if you arrest this girl for shoplifting, I mean, it sounds horrible to begin with, but it could even affect her future if she now, let's say, has a record, but in general just didn't feel right. And he said rather than arrest her, uh, he decided to see what things were like at her home. And so he takes her home and he sees that she's living in this very uh, poor neighborhood and they their home has almost no furniture, very little furniture in it. There's a mom, apparently it's a mom and dad and five kids living in this home. And so, of course, he was sympathetic, his heart broke for them. And he did not, of course, press any charges against this 12-year-old girl. But instead, he went and got them four pizzas and some beverages and brought them back. And he paid for them out of his own pocket. And then he um, left. And later on, he didn't actually bring a lot of attention to this, but people found out in the police department and he got a lot of uh, positive praise from the police department of course from people Um, and then the police department is now taking donate or this was three years ago i don't know what's happened i didn't look for an update on the story the police um, started to ask for donations for clothes and things for the family and beautiful story right Um, and one of those stories that no matter what side of the political aisle you're on right or left or you don't have a political affiliation, but almost everyone could like this story from from basically beginning to end. Now, some parts of it I don't like, which I guess I'll get to. But, uh, um, you know, that this officer arrived. When we're talking about justice, that's what the rules are for, the laws are there, and that's why we would hope we have them. Justice is about things being right in some way, being fair, being okay. And so to arrest a 12-year-old uh, for trying to steal a $2 pair of shoes, most of us would say is not really fair or just or needed. We don't need that to make the world fair. Um, And then also, especially right now with police officers, and there's so much of a debate about defund the police, abolish the police, and people being angry at the police, and then of course people supporting the police. The, the, The police itself has become this very political and polarizing type of an issue. So here we have a a situation of a police officer doing something very good. These days, a lot of what we're hearing in the news is uh, something negative that a police officer has done. But here, again, it was from a few years ago, but these types of stories happen. Um, We see a police officer new to the job doing something really wonderful. Uh, But this is where, for me, the story, if we look at it a little bit deeper, of course, on the surface, it's great. A few things start to come up. To begin with, he drove into a neighborhood. Well, let me take a step back. The officer did a wonderful thing. And first of all, not, you know, arresting or you know giving the child some kind of a ticket or complaint, but, and also then helping out the family. That's wonderful. But when we hear he drove into this bad neighborhood, what we recognize is that this isn't the only family and the only children that are in that situation. And then, so there's an outpouring of helping this child. And um, when you help this child, which is great, we see there's other kids that aren't being helped and we want to 
be aware of that or care about that as well. And that can be heartbreaking to see that this child is getting helped, but what about the others? Or this family is getting helped, what about the others? Because a lot of times these cases come up where I talked about one where this boy, I think he was either in a homeless shelter or he was very in a very poor family. He became a chess champion. And then there was a GoFundMe page. And then all these people donated money. And what was amazing was that the family... They, they took enough money just to take care of themselves in a very basic way, but then donated the rest of the money to, to help others. But we see this outpouring of support to help one family or one kid, and that happens. That's great. But what I find puzzling is people are so in favor of something like this. But then when we think of the government helping families like this, all of a sudden it becomes a political issue. Uh, we're talking about, is that a handout? Is it something, you know, is it socialism? Is something not okay? And, and this is where I have a hard time grasping how those things can both be true. This police officer who, new police officer, I don't know, makes 50000 I'm not exactly sure, but not incredibly wealthy individual, takes some of his money to help this family, which I think is beautiful. I think that's wonderful. But then when we think of the government helping people who are poor, all of a sudden we uh, get these debates about should we do it or not. And that's what I have a hard time trying to comprehend or reconcile. If it's a good thing for this police officer to help this family and then for people to donate their clothes and, and things to this family, um, why would it not be better for the government? And I know even when I say that, people, well, the government shouldn't be doing things, less government and all that. But the government has much more resources to take care of um, people who are in poverty. Why would that not be a good thing? And so for me, that's why this book, Economic Dignity, really stood out, just the concept and then reading more about it and then reading the book, was that I think everyone has human rights to be taken care of as far as have the basic needs met. And that as a society, we should always make sure that is the case. So I even, you know, this was wonderful. And what might sound interesting is I think charities are wonderful, right? But um, when we look at charity, sometimes I get sad when I think, well, why does that charity even have to exist? So I can give an example from my own experience. There's an uh, organization here in Los Angeles called School on Wheels that provides tutoring and academic services for children experiencing homelessness or facing poverty, which sounds like a wonderful organization. Of course, that's why I wanted to get involved and help out. But also just the fact that we have homeless children should, I would hope, be alarming, that we don't just accept that as something necessary that there has to be homelessness for people in the united states that children need to be experiencing homeless why should that have to be the case to begin with so in this paradoxical way i mean i don't really want this is that i think i almost wish there wasn't a charity like school on wheels because i wish there was no need because there wouldn't be homeless children to need this economic or uh, educational support to, to add to what they're going through or to give them that support. And so I think we can look at this in a lot of ways, but one thing for me is to look at why are some of these things acceptable? If there is some kind of huge crisis right now, of course, there's the coronavirus pandemic and things of that nature going on. Um, 
But when we have a crisis, if there's fires, we send firefighters to, to fight the fires. It's an emergency. If there's a flood, now, of course, I know sometimes we don't respond fast enough and people get upset about that, rightfully so. But we send something there. But when children are homeless or we have people going through these things, why is it not seen as an emergency? And so it, it sometimes takes some taking a step back to recognize when we have um, certain crises that we accept, when we have certain things that people, uh, let's say, you know, you also see these GoFundMe, someone has needs a medical procedure and they don't have the insurance or the money to pay for that medical procedure and people are donating money. And it seems really nice. Oh, look at these random people, strangers that don't know this person who is suffering, this family or that individual, and they're donating money. That's, that's wonderful. But shouldn't we also think, well, why do we live in a society where people can't pay for their medical procedures and might die or might have a worse quality of life or a shorter life because of that? Uh, shouldn't that itself be something that we think about and, and actually address as an emergency or as a crisis? And, and I think if we look forward and people looking back at our time, they probably will think something like that. How is it acceptable that you have the medical procedures available we have the technology and the doctors and to to do those things but we don't do anything about it or those people die or in this book economic um, dignity he was talking about early education and how so many three and four year olds don't get to go to preschool because their family can't afford it or they live in an area where it's not available and this can have negative outcomes on their lives and how can we just accept something like this and say that it's okay? So I read the story of Officer Milton. It is a very sweet story. Again, it's from 2017. You can look it up. I think it's wonderful what he did. He kind of took things in his own hand, took the initiative to realize this was not a case where this child needed to be punished, um, but rather she needed and her family needed help. And that's another important point that I'll, I'll maybe end this segment on, that when we look at things like crime and these issues of police, and it's very complicated, and I'm not going to address all of it, but we know that poverty contributes or is, makes it more likely for crime to occur. When you have less poverty, you have less crime in an area. And yet, when we think about police and policing, I've heard it by some people, but less I've heard uh, people saying, well, if we reduce poverty, there will be less crime and situations going on for the police to respond, or of course, whoever else um, responds to, uh, to have to get involved. We would have less of these things going on. So I, I hope we can look at these issues and think, what can be different? I think we can imagine a world where we can address some of these things. I don't mean it in an idealistic way, but that we have the resources to take care of people better than we do, and we should make that a priority. Unfortunately, taking care of the poor, very often it might be talked about, but there isn't, of course, a lot of money when it comes to the poor, by, by definition. And we know that a lot of our politics in the United States, especially and, and around the world, many countries, is very much affected by money influencing what's going on. But there isn't going to be money behind a lot of these things, which is heartbreaking that that's what it comes down to. But that's also why, as I said, I try to understand the economics of these situations a little bit better because I know that in order to make proposals or to talk about change, it's very important to look at 
how the economics are going to be affected because that's usually, unfortunately, uh, what it's going to come down to. People have to agree with the economics of the situation, not just think of it as a human rights issue, which a lot of these situations might be. Anyway, let's go to another commercial break. and We'll be right back. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fajr Lakhmi. Welcome back. So in today's show, I've talked a bit uh, about some economic concepts or ideas. Of course, I'm not an economist, um, but the book Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling helped me learn some things and understand some of the concepts related to how we can build an economy that makes sure everyone has a basic level of dignity. And and during the commercial break, I've been um, interacting with people who are joining me on Instagram Live, which I'm doing for the Monday night shows. And there were some comments related to things like, um, you know, I mentioned LeBron James and people uh, coming overcoming struggles, which is beautiful, inspiring. I'm sure we've seen, I know I've seen so many stories of people who are inspirational for what they have overcome. Uh, and so we can think, well, isn't it good in some way to have these stories of where people are overcoming something very challenging, very difficult? I think, of course, it's nice to see people doing something inspiring, motivational, of what they were able to overcome. But I actually think it's a unfair way to say some people are going to be disadvantaged and let's see what you can do. I think it's much more fair to live in a world, live in a society where we try to give everyone as fair of a chance as possible. Again, not everything is going to be exactly equal. I don't think we should strive for that because that's not really possible. Um, but that we give people at least the basics, as the book was talking about, to then see what they can do. You know, one of the ways we miss out in this world is that throughout history and even still, we don't get to receive the gifts that everyone has. By gifts, I mean art, skills, uh, intellectual abilities. Because throughout history, most people didn't get the opportunities to meet their potential. Now, again, it's the opportunity to meet their potential. We can't guarantee everyone meets their potential because it takes effort from that individual themselves too. We can't make that part happen, but we should give them the opportunity to then um, utilize that opportunity to meet their potential and to become the best they can be, which is more humane, in my opinion, to them, that everyone gets that opportunity. But then we as a society benefit as well when everyone gets the opportunity to express themselves. So if you look throughout history, for example, um, women did not have you know, access to education, still don't in some places, uh, and still face discrimination, and we're still fighting for equality. So I'm not saying that we're done, but I'm saying when we look at history, especially we see that we as a world have missed out on a lot of the contributions that women could have made throughout history because they were thought that they couldn't, men wanted the power, they weren't allowed to study, do things, or they weren't listened to when they had ideas because of the assumptions that were made of a superiority of the male, which is not true. And so we all missed out because they weren't given those opportunities. Um, and then we look at different races. We still have that in the United States where we don't get the benefits of what everyone has to contribute. So again, it's kind of a lose-lose and the flip of, it, flip of it is a win-win. When we give everyone the opportunity to meet um, their 
potential or to achieve their potential, they get to get what they deserve, which is they have the right to pursue that potential, to live a fulfilling and meaningful life. But then we all get to benefit from that as well when they get to show up. I had this like image of, uh, you know, there's a performance somewhere and different people want to come to perform and show their art, which can be moving for people that get to watch it and hear it and see it. But then some people, the roads aren't built for them to get to that arena, that stadium to then perform. And so they want to get there. They want to perform. They want to show their skills and their art and and for the rest of us enjoy it, but they don't get the road to get there. And so, of course, it's unfair to those people They want to be able to express themselves. They want to share that gift, which would feel good to them, make them feel a purpose, a meaning, and that they get to express themselves. And then, of course, everyone else would miss out too, because they wouldn't be given the chance to experience what they have to share. And this is in every type of aspect of life. So I was kind of making an artistic analogy. It could be scientific, it can be ideas, it could be all arenas of life again, using that word arena in a different way, um, that we're going to miss out on if people are not given that chance to express them. So there's no way to make everyone have equal, equal opportunity and lives, of course, but we should make sure we create a society where everyone gets the opportunity to see what they can do and who they can become. And I know saying that can sound utopian or idealistic, But I don't think it is. And in this book, we have, uh, as I mentioned, Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling. He's expressing it from an economic perspective, someone who served in government, of ways we can create this and that we should make that the goal. And he makes it clear. He's not saying, here's my three-step plan. And if you follow this, it's going to be so easy to make everyone happy and everyone have economic dignity. He makes it clear it's challenging. He doesn't have all the answers. A lot of the things he proposes, he says he thinks this is the best one or the best option, but he doesn't know. And also, we're going to have to keep looking at these issues of how are things affecting people in this world? How are people uh, either getting more opportunities or not, or taking care of them or we're not taking care of them? And so hopefully we can approach it with that mindset. As he says, that's our North Star, that That is what we're going towards. And the question that was brought up, I understand it. You know, look at people overcoming challenges. But we don't have the right to give people challenges to overcome and then say, oh, look, you're lucky I did that to you. It's like a parent saying, well, why don't I kind of, uh, and this is not to say what the question was, but I'm saying kind of taking this to maybe an extreme, but let me abuse my child so that then they can overcome that abuse and become some inspirational story. The truth of it is life is hard enough as it is, even when we are taken care of in the ways I've talked about, even when we uh, do meet the basic requirements. It doesn't mean life becomes easy. It's just challenging. And actually, we give everyone the opportunity to face those types of challenges of life rather than face the challenges of basic survival. This does actually, um, in some ways, relate to the book I talked about, I think it was last week or the week before, Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman, looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that everyone should get the right to try to self-actualize to meet their potential. And if you're too preoccupied with the basic needs of shelter and food and survival, you won't be able to reach to that higher potential because you'll have to be focused on those things. And so we need to give everyone that opportunity to 
be able to meet those basic needs and then be able to transcend and to go further for themselves and again the rest of the world and society to benefit from it as well so life is hard enough as it is this actually reminds me of um heinz kohut who was a famous psychologist from i don't know a while ago not that long ago but um i believe no longer alive uh, he talked about how when you're in therapy the repairs that come up meaning so if you're with a client you're trying to be attuned to them okay they're feeling something you're trying to understand it respond in ways they like but he was saying one other aspect of the growth is that sometimes when you get it wrong and then repairing that both the repair you do together but also that the person has to deal with those feelings on their own that maybe they didn't feel so good those could also be healing and actually contribute to growth and then so some therapists asked him oh if that's the case then should we intentionally sometimes get it wrong to give them these opportunities to growth and his response was something along the lines of no don't worry you'll get it wrong enough times anyway so even if we try to be there for someone as best as we can it'll still be hard there will still be challenges we will still sometimes have issues come up so in a similar way i think life is challenging enough as it is another example is i work with a lot of families and a lot of them are iranian and so unfortunately we can sometimes be too involved in each other's lives and so i'll work with young adults or in families where the young adult is trying to find a partner and they're dating someone and then now the parents get involved and they disagree or they say no you can't because of this or we already know it's bad because of that or you know they give their opinions and they create tension they say we won't let him or her to our house because we don't approve of the relationship or a variety of ways that they get involved and what i see and what's unfortunate is that i tell the couples or I tell the individual or whoever it might be or the thought that comes to my mind is evaluating a relationship and to to try to figure out if you and this person are a good match is very challenging in the best of conditions it's already hard enough but when the parents then add these types of dynamics and these influences it becomes i don't want to say impossible but very very challenging very hard and can interfere with the getting to know each other process it can infiltrate the way each person thinks about the other person they can create so much drama and trauma and conflict that it could feel like the relationship is not worth it sometimes that's maybe even their intention and so it makes it that much more challenging so it's the same kind of thing for me i think life is very hard itself we don't need to make life hard for people and again even saying that it's very unfair to say we're going to choose that some people are going to have um a disadvantage to start and let's see what they can do it's kind of like we're playing a game with life and people's lives to say some people should have challenges and let's see what they do and also um challenges happen in life anyway we can take care of everyone but people still will die people will get illnesses things happen even when we try to take care of everyone we can't prevent all the hardships of life but i think what we should try to do is prevent all the ones that we can prevent and i know that sounds simple and maybe obvious but if we look at what we're doing we're not always doing that we should try to prevent everything that is avoidable people if we have the medication no one should die from that 
that issue. If we have enough food to feed everyone, no one should die from lack of food. If we have enough water, same thing. If we have enough shelter, no one should be living on the street. Those are the things that I would think we should focus on. The inevitabilities of life that happen, sickness, um, death, variety of things that we might experience, we're never going to get rid of all of them. But we can do what we can to get rid of the ones that are avoidable. And then related to that, sometimes when we talk about injustices in an economic way or in general, what I hear people say sometimes, well, you know what? Life isn't fair. So, yeah, some people are poor and they, their kids maybe don't get to go to a good school and it might not. But you know what? Life isn't fair. And they need to learn that even like it's some kind of lesson. I do believe life isn't fair that everyone does not have an equal chance and everything is not equal. And sometimes bad things happen to good people. But that doesn't mean we just give up there, that we accept that. Um, if you were to order something from Amazon and it didn't show up, you wouldn't say, well, life's not fair. You'd file a complaint. You try to get something right. And that's just to get your money back or to be, feel like things are fair there. So how can we tell people that if their life is challenging from day one, if they're living in extreme poverty, that that's just life is unfair, accept it. So I also think that life can be unfair, but our whole mindset should be when we're talking about justice is to make them as fair as possible. Will we ever get it perfectly right? Of course not. It's an ideal to strive towards justice and to live in a just society, but it doesn't mean we give up because we can't get it perfect. You'll never be a perfect parent, but you should strive to be the best parent you can be. You'll never be a perfect husband or wife, but you should strive to be the best husband and wife you can be to your partner. And so we as a society, we won't get it perfectly right, but we should make sure any injustices we can avoid, that we can alleviate for people, that we take those so seriously to see that we do everything we can to remove them. And yes, in the end, we still won't live in a perfectly fair world. But let's make sure that's what we're striving towards. And it's very easy and very common that when things are not fair in some way, there's something called need for a just world, a psychological concept. It's very unsettling to think things are unfair. This is one of the reasons we're so quick to blame a victim. You know, we blame a victim. Oh, someone was raped. What were they wearing? Or where were they? Somehow as if it could be their fault that that happened when it's never okay. Or someone gets killed or something happens. We very often look for a way to blame the victim because it's unsettling to think that things are unfair. And we might have to live with that understanding that sometimes they will be fair, but again, not accept it. So we sometimes try to justify if something's unfair. Well, maybe there's some explanation. Oh, you know, homeless people, maybe they don't want to even be housed or somehow it's their fault. And always I think, okay, even if those things which are not true are true, what about homeless children? How can you say they're responsible or to blame for their situation? How can we accept that? Um, so to address the question and wrap things up, yes, um, the world will never be completely fair. But we should look at that justice as our North Star that we are guiding society towards. How can we make things as fair as possible, take care of everyone the best way that we can to make sure the basics are met and they have a possibility to live a life where they can have meaning and purpose and potential be met 
and then you know the rest will have to figure itself out and it's something we constantly have to reevaluate because the world is changing situations are changing technology changes things all sorts of things are happening but we want to make sure we're striving towards justice and we never take our eye off of that goal that we don't give up and say well it's too hard or that's just the way it is that we're always striving towards making a more just society in every way we can and with all the resources that we can that brings us to the end of tonight's show as always a big thank you to amir here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fatty have a wonderful night 